This is a Federal News Network podcast. State and local laws aren't often on the military's radar, but recently the Air Force has gotten vocal about a handful of laws and directives that are taking place mainly in southern states. Those laws limit some activities transgender children can partake in and limit how sexuality is talked about in schools, at least for some grades. Federal News Network Scott Massioni joins me with what he's found. And Scott, let's begin with a quick review of what some of these laws are actually saying. Yeah, we, we've seen a handful of laws and also directives, and these are in places like Texas, Alabama, and Florida. Some of these are ones that don't allow transgender children to participate in extracurricular sports. Others are keeping Uh, children, teachers, and other people in school areas from talking about sexuality. So, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to talk about uh, homosexuality or uh, something like that for some of the lower grades. The thought behind this is that some children may not be mature enough to talk about these things or that it may influence them in some way. So these bills have been passing and have been hotly debated throughout the nation throughout these past couple of months. All right. And what is the Air Force saying or doing about them? Because they certainly have yeah. installations and staff throughout the South. Yeah, well, they have they have a lot, especially in, in these, these states. And what they're doing is they sent out a press release saying that really the health care and resilience of all of the Air Force defense personnel and their families is their top priority and essential to their ability to accomplish the mission. So they're tracking these state laws and they're ensuring that they can give airmen and guardians and their families the resources that they need to mitigate any kind of efforts. So... They're giving them medical and legal resources. They can go to the medical treatment facilities. There's also legal resources on base that if they feel that there's some sort of issue within the schools that they don't agree with, they can go and get at least some legal advice. And finally, there's the Exceptional Family Member Program, which assists families with special needs children in medical and legal and educational support. That program actually is letting some airmen move away from those states if they feel that they are in danger or that they uh, don't feel comfortable having their child go to the school that they've, they're in the locality for. Interesting. And does this happen a lot? Does it come up among Air Force staff? Because I wonder if, I mean, there's a certain percentage of staff that will be happy with these local laws, rules, and regulations, and a certain percentage that will not be. Right. I mean, we haven't really heard any sort of polling within the Air Force. Uh, you know, we, we have obviously heard that there are children that are transgender in the military or well, in military families. And also there are you know, gay and lesbian children, and, and they are expressing themselves in however way they want. But what is rare about this is that the military is actually stepping in to do something about these local laws. One of the people I talked to is former Army Personnel Chief Tammy Smith. And she said, really, the last time she could remember something like this happening is when there was the don't ask, don't tell policy where service members were not allowed to serve openly. The Army provided advice for them on what to do once they actually repealed that, how to come out, what this means for you. Another situation was when before same-sex marriage became legal uh, nationally, there were some states that it was legal in and other states where it was not. They had an opportunity to maybe go to Vermont, get married, and come back to Texas. Well, they gave them legal advice on what to do once they returned to that state and you know how to reside in that state and, and keep the legalities that they had. It sounds like the Air Force is, in part, acting like some of the trans-state and national corporations that have to deal with these state and local ordinances and laws and their employees' reactions to them. But the Air Force is staying out of the lobbying or taking a position, just simply giving people resources 
to deal with them at the individual level. Fair way to put it. I think it is. And I think the biggest concern is really the health and the mental health of the children involved in this. There's a group called the Trevor Project, which does an annual survey of LGBTQ youth and found that 52% of transgender and non-binary children have contemplated killing themselves in 2020 and 42% of LGBTQ youth considered taking their lives. Also, three quarters of those children reported discrimination based on their sexual orientation and 94% reported recent politics negatively impacting their mental health. Uh, You know, on the other side of this, we're hearing that uh, the uh, lawmakers on mostly very conservative side of things saying that this is, you know, social experimentation. However, we've heard from the American Medical Association and they say that that empirical evidence shows that transgender and non-binary identities are normal variations in human identity and in expression. So, you know, we're seeing some difference between science and maybe opinions and religion as well. And the Air Force is taking these steps. What about the Army and what about the Navy? We haven't heard anything from them at this point. You know, these uh, opportunities are still open for them. They haven't really changed anything exactly. Uh, What makes this just interesting is that the Air Force is actually reaching out and just giving a hand to say, don't forget that these resources are here. Uh, And, you know, it's just... It's just something that doesn't often happen. They don't really stick their hands into these sort of local kind of issues. And that's what makes this release and this reminder so interesting. And we should point out that you broke this story originally, and now it has been picked up by other media outlets in the intervening days. That's right. Well, yeah, we have it now on the Huffington Post and the Washington Post. But, you know, really the Air Force broke it itself by putting out a press release, but not too many people paid attention to it. And closer to military direct affairs, the space threat analysis is also out now. Who issued that and what does it say? This is coming from the Defense Intelligence Agency, and obviously there's no surprise here. It identified the biggest competitors for the United States to be China and Russia, along with increasing congestion in the area just outside the Earth's atmosphere. Right now, there's literally tens to hundreds of thousands of objects orbiting the Earth, and they really pose a problem for satellites. So what this this analysis was, was really the past two years of what the space landscape is looking like. And what they're saying is that they've seen really a 70% increase in the amount of satellites that China and Russia have put into the atmosphere, well, outside the atmosphere, excuse me, into space. And then they've seen that grow and they see that the space is becoming an increasingly militarized area. One of the things that they are concerned about is uh, possibilities for exploring the moon for natural resources and ending up mining there. And that also includes doing the same thing on Mars. So the United States is really just keeping an eye on these sorts of things. And obviously, we've seen many things happen with the United States in space in terms of increased budgets and the creation of the Space Force in the last two years. Sounds like they've got a couple of different concerns. One is what those satellites from China and Russia will do with or to our satellites, and also just the congestion physically of the different orbit bands with so many satellites being launched, fleets of satellites, CubeSats, smaller ones. It's getting pretty physically crowded up there. That's right. And and one of the other concerns about these satellites is that they can be dual use. So it may go up with the auspices of being a civilian exploration vehicle and then turn into something that is militaristic with a robot arm that may, you know, say it's picking up junk and then actually pick up a United States satellite and destroy it. So We don't necessarily know what the true reasoning behind some of these satellites may be as well. 
And the junk itself used to be a satellite or satellites. <laughs> yes, many of the Soviet ones from the 70s and United States ones from the 60s and 70s are uh, around there. There's an ex- estimated 600 to 900,000 pieces of uncatalogued debris just going around the Earth as we speak right now. Yeah, too bad it's mostly aluminum because flying a big magnet up there won't help much. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out both of his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.